This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the art, the literature, music and film that have influenced them and inspire them today and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. In this episode, it's A Brush With, Billy Zangewa, who hand stitches images often featuring herself using raw silk. With these highly coloured, intricate compositions, she hopes to challenge existing representations of black women. Billy was born in 1973 in Blantyre, Malawi and grew up in Botswana. She studied at the Rhodes University in Grahamstown, South Africa in the 1990s and focused on printmaking and then returned to Botswana to live with her family. It's there that she first began to use fabric in her compositions, as we'll hear. She eventually moved back to South Africa and now lives in Johannesburg. Billy's imagery is both highly personal and universal. She began by making what she calls her cityscapes, reflecting on her personal experience of urban life and relationships, often accompanied by male figures, and looking at how the male gaze so often defines how women are seen in art and life. In Christmas at the Ritz from 2006, for instance, she depicts herself luxuriating in bed in the Ritz, while a male figure at the bottom of the image asks, Where are you, Billy girl? Many of these earlier works are about liberation, particularly rebirth of the black. Venus from 2010, which sees a nude Billy rising up above the city with a sash around her body stating, surrender wholeheartedly to your complexity. Made after she'd broken off an engagement, that work was pivotal in her development as an artist and as a woman, she says. And indeed, in recent years, particularly since the birth of her son, Mika, she's focused increasingly on depictions of herself at home as a woman and a mother in domestic space. Inevitably, within the context of the art gallery, that means her work comes into dialogue with historic representations of women in interiors. Zangewa portrays herself engaging in deliberately humdrum activities, reading a book in In My Solitude from 2018, or taking a shower in Cold Shower of the same year, taking a bath with a glass of wine and watching an episode of Game of Thrones in Date Night from 2017, and among many works depicting aspects of motherhood, she homeschools Mika in Heart of the Home from 2020. Importantly, the works are rarely conventional in their shape, with absences in the composition playing a crucial role in the dynamism of the images. Sometimes she deliberately concentrates on the depiction of objects around her and represents only fragments of herself. By training her eye on the mundane moments of daily existence, she says she wants to explore the overlooked aspect of women's lives. She refers to this as daily feminism, illustrating domestic labour, confronting gender and racial stereotypes, and exploring the home as a space for the construction of identity. Importantly, she sees the works as asserting power and representing pleasure, as well as the demands of single motherhood. The fact that she uses fabric is, of course, a deliberate engagement with gendered associations of art or craft materials. And I began our conversation by asking her about silk. What drew her to the material that gives her work both its boldness and its fragility? Well, I discovered silk through a friend, actually. Um, She was an interior designer and um, I was working in a shop at the time. And I had my day off and she said, well, why don't you come fabric shopping with me while I'm working for my clients? So I thought, you know, it was an opportunity to spend time with my friend. But then as we were going around, you know, she said to me, you can also get fabric swatches because, you know, you're with me. 
So then I discovered these Dupion silk or raw silk swatches. And everywhere we went, I kind of just collected a bit more because I couldn't really afford to buy any. I was a young artist and, you know, I had to work in a clothing shop. So clearly I was not flush. <laughs> and um, I just I just really liked it. Like when I when I took all the swatches home and I had a look at them and the way they reflected the light and the nuance and the kind of the richness, it, you know, it really struck me. And it's also quite a stiff fabric. So it's very easy to work with. One of the things that I noticed about your work is that you allow those sort of loose threads at the edge of the silk to fray a little, to to create a kind of fringe at the end. And that seems to me like a kind of blurring, almost almost it was like in drawing when you blur lines and get into one another. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. I guess for me, I look at it like that's life. You know, my work reflects life. We've got frayed edges <laughs> and sometimes we unravel completely. <laughs> Even when we appear like we are all put together. Um, so I think for me, it's, you know, it's a very layered kind of message. Uh, tell me about your process a bit more, because I'm intrigued about, for, for instance, do you use photographs? To what extent do you use drawings? Because I know that drawings are the basis of the pattern, but to what extent are photographs the sort of in, original impetus for the work? Yes, definitely. So I work from photographs and um I either use photographs that friends have taken and then I ask them if I may please use their photos. They're usually quite chuffed. They don't, you know, they don't give me any problems. Um, otherwise, I actually set up photo shoots. So if I have an idea, then I set up a little photo shoot with my camera and my, you know, tripod and the timer. And I'm not a photographer. I tried doing photography when I was in high school and I did a photography course twice and I, I was vacant after both <laughs> I don't think I'm supposed to be a photographer. So my photos are not amazing. But I know that when I turn them into drawings and then finally, you know, cut out the drawing and place it onto the silk and all of that, that it's going to become what I need. Tell me about the, the transition in your work, because there's this moment where your son was born mm. and that marked a massive shift in your work. So that before that, it was focused on the world around you in relation to yourself, whereas ever since then, you've been much more focused on your own self as a sort of protagonist of the work. Yes, definitely. I would say that, you know, having my son, you know, was was a really big influence for me. I think, first of all, you know, my time was limited because I was looking after a baby. I had to take advantage of the creative time I had. But um, but also, you know, I had my son and I just was like, oh, my God, look at this beautiful baby. And he's my baby. And I'm having this incredible experience. And I just really wanted to share that with the world. And and of course, my experience with my son while he was young was happening you know, at the home front, because when a child is quite young, you find yourself staying at home quite a lot because every time you've got to go out, you've got to pack like a thousand things <laughs> to go out. So I think in that stage, you try to avoid going out as much as possible just because it's such a big mission. But um, just, just wanting to share that experience with people just really opened me up to that whole concept of sharing the domestic space and a woman's daily life. And it's important that it's a woman's daily life as well. And also, you said it's important that it's a black woman's daily life because you want to draw attention to still marginalised figures in society. Well, exactly, because, you know, black women, we're still quite silenced. You know, I think, like, people look at Oprah and they look at Beyonce and they think we're all liberated, but that's not true because the rest of us are still objects, you know, for everyone who casts their gaze on us. 
and um, we're pretty much silenced. And I think what was interesting for me was that when I was growing up, you know, I was born in the early 70s, but and I have two brothers. I just noticed how differently even my dad, you know, dealt with us, with me versus my brothers. And I knew that, you know, I knew that being black and female in this world was going to be a very, very difficult journey for me. And that a lot of people were going to project their fantasies and desires onto me and that they would not see me as a person. They wouldn't be able to empathize with my daily struggles or even to understand that I had feelings, you know. So I think that was also one of the reasons why I chose to depict such mundane daily images, because what I was really trying to say was a black woman is just like any other person. You know, we go through the same routine every day. We go through the same struggles. We're all human. Really, that's I think that's my overriding message, really. And you call it daily feminism, don't you? The kind of imagery that you're using, as, as you say, that kind of mundane imagery, but it's a, it's a daily activism to a degree. Yes, exactly. So I guess my politics are kind of very easy to understand because I use benchmarks that anyone can relate to, really. But it's very interesting when I was working on a show um, with a curator last year, she said she mentioned the personal is political. And I thought actually my work definitely does fit into that. And I think that was a movement in the 70s or something. I'm not very good with my history. So I think, you know, what I do is kind of a, an offshoot of that, although I call it daily feminism, but I think it's definitely the personalized political. Well, another thing I'm really interested in is that, is that use of fabric in a way arrived by accident because you said it, it happened when you went back to Botswana having graduated mm. and you just could not use oil paint or printmaking indeed and therefore had to find something else to use. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. So I truly believe that necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> so, but I mean, I had earth angels guiding me along the way because my friend, I went to a friend's house for tea and an artist friend. And um, she said, you know, I can see that you're at a crossroads and you don't really know what you're going to do next. But I've also noticed that you really love fashion. So my grandmother left me these fabrics. Why don't you have a look through the trunk and see if there's something that inspires you? So, you know, even though I had been working with fabric, you know, since I was quite young, I started, you know, learning needlework and stuff like that when I, you know, when I was about six or seven. But I think that was definitely me being guided you know, so so I found a fabric and it was silk, but it was a different silk to the Dupion silk. It was much more like a satin, but quite a robust satin. And that's really where, yeah. And then I just thought, well, this is actually perfect because dad's not going to get angry because <laughs> I'm not staining the whole house with oil paints and making things smell bad and stuff. And it's easy to clean up. You just vacuum it up and you can fold it and pack it away. So, yeah, so it definitely, you know, necessity is the mother of invention was at play there for me, I think. And still to this day, and obviously so many people have done this over the course of the pandemic, but you work at your kitchen table. Your, the domestic space is still very much the, the sort of arena of your work. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I love this room. The light is absolutely incredible. So basically my house is open plan. And we have two interleading lounges. So I've got my lounge, which has all the cream sofas and stuff. And my son is banned, <laughs> but he's always in there. And then he has his own like chill out space right next to mine. And then the kitchen is right there. So what's really nice is that when I'm working, my you know, I can see my son and he can see me and we can have all of these interactions, even though I'm at work and he's at play. 
So, and also I can look out to my garden, which obviously just helps me to like, whew, just find like some kind of Zen space um, in my head um, when, when I'm stressed out at work. But it's very inconvenient working in your kitchen because we can't cook. <laughs> so we yes, end up... that, imagine, yeah, you can't, get a, you can't get greasy marks on that beautiful silk. No, there's no frying of bacon that's happening in the kitchen. <laughs> so I do realize that at some point I probably will have to move into a studio and we actually just renovated my little studio space. So I think I probably have to move in there just because it's, it's not feasible anymore. It really isn't. I mean, I, I started out working in my bed before I had my son. So then, of course, once you have a child, you think about the pins and your child getting pricked in the bed. I didn't worry about hurting myself. <laughs> so I did graduate from the bedroom to the kitchen, which, which was a big step for me. But I think I may have to move to a studio Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist that you loved? Vincent van Gogh. Good choice. I love him. He's a master <laughs> genius <laughs> extraordinaire. <laughs> That's really interesting. Where did you first come across his work? Well, you know, it's quite ironic because when I was growing up, I wasn't really exposed to art. So I saw his work mainly on like biscuit tins and stuff like that because he was so like commodified in that way and popularized. And then when I was at university and I had to do an essay on him, I did some extensive research and I came across the letters between himself and his brother. And it just gave me so much insight into the person and his pain and struggles and suffering, but also the support that he got from his brother. They had a very, very close, intimate relationship, the two of them. So, so you know, when I did that essay and I looked at his work again, I actually realized that he was completely underrated. So, you know, for us, he's just a symbol, a brand, but he was an absolute art genius. It sometimes strikes me as really odd that you have this, you know, a, a very, very it's sort of difficult experience often being described by this extraordinary artist that finds its way into those kind of, you know, as you say, biscuit tins, cushions, whatever. Mm. Um, but they were so radical in their time, so radical that people just could not understand them. Yeah. Well, to me, he was a genius, especially his later work just before he died. Just like completely sublime. I mean, honestly, he was a master with paint. Yeah. And would you look at his work in the context of your own work? As in, would you would you refer to his work, look into books when you're at a, an ampass in your own work, for instance? Uh, you know, I try not to look at other people's work when I'm working because I want to give people the pure experience of who I am and what I'm going through. So actually, like, I won't even go to a gallery show if I'm working. I don't go to museums. I don't, I don't like, I, I, you know, I can't have any input from the outside. So when I'm not working, I love to go and see other people's work and, you know, appreciate and, and take some little pointers and maybe, you know, be influenced a little bit, but never when I'm in the middle of a show. Is it just that you just you are just fearing that you know that the, the the influences will seep in too much and you'll lose your thread or literally? <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's exactly the point. Because I think it is very easy to be influenced, you know, especially like if I encounter something exceptional. Of course, I'm going to go back and think about it, and it will subconsciously influence what I'm doing. So, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? 
you know, there isn't a single one. I would have to say that most of the artists who are working at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, I mean, I don't know all those expressionism, impressionism, post whatever, whatever, but I love the fact that they were elevating the mundane, you know, things like still lives and water lilies and bridges. I mean, it's so cool that you can just take something so ordinary and make it so beautiful. So um, I was going to ask you, because there's this work that's at Tate Modern at the moment of yours called Date Night, and it features you in your bath. And it just occurred to me, there's a great work in the Tate Modern collection of by Bonner, mm. which is him depicting his, his wife in the bath. And I wondered if you'd looked at Bonner's paintings of women in the bath before you made that work was Bonner at all in your mind when you made that work no it wasn't I was just trying to share to the with the world how pathetic my life was (laughs) (laughs) that like when my son's at his dad's house all I do is go and have take a bath and watch Game of Thrones and drink a glass of wine (laughs) because I'm actually too exhausted to even like like you know organize a date or go out with friends so so maybe subconsciously yes maybe subconsciously there was that influence but honestly for me it really was just trying to say that I lead a very boring life (laughs) of course one of the things about about that work is that you don't really show much of the action as it were do you you know you're 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 mostly out of it it's your legs at the bottom of the bath there is as you say there's the ipad which has got game of thrones on it Mm -hmm. but in a way that work is almost more about absence than it is about presence Yes, yeah, I think I just wanted to give the viewer my view of the room. So it wasn't so much look at me in my bath. It was more like this is how I'm experiencing the bath. But I also really, you know, like from time to time, objects become quite central in my work. So I think that was one of those pieces where I wanted the objects in the room to to tell the story as opposed to the figure, you know, in the narrative. Tell me how you decide on what the gaps will be in your work, because obviously it's one of the most striking elements of them is that they're often not complete rectangles. There are um, elements missing from them, from a complete uh, rectangular image or perfectly realised image that we might expect. But but there, there must be a decision process there. And, and I wonder, I'm, I'm intrigued about that. Well, basically, um, those kind of uneven edges are really um, work speaking to each other. So I would have cut out a piece for a previous work, which would have created that negative kind of space. So really what happens is like I might pick up a piece and just go, oh, I'm enjoying the way this is looking. I need to make a work with it. But then it's only until the work reveals itself to me that I say, oh, you know, I think that piece of fabric is going to be perfect for what I'm trying to say here. So I do keep it quite spontaneous. I'm not trying to force anything into anything as such. And as I was saying to you before, I really enjoy those, you know, irregular edges and, you know, a kind of like a trauma intervention from from the outside kind of vibe, you know, because for me, it again speaks to society, you know, and also just like the, the personal individual and how we have wounds we've got scars we've got certain um, thought patterns that don't serve us well you know things like that so so I'm again just speaking to the perfect and the imperfect so to speak just like the combination that we're all a combination of perfect and imperfect and which contemporary artist do you most admire 
Yayoi Kusama is incredible. <laughs> I mean, I honestly don't think that anybody can equal her. I'm sorry. I mean, there are lots of brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artists, but I think she has an incredible focus in that her work just gels together, you know. She doesn't seem like she's going off over there and then going in a different direction. It always seems like she's expanding on a theme. And I think that's what makes her really incredible. It's true when you look at the very earliest work she does and you see that there are dots amongst mm. them and you see that the, the, the way that she has expanded that language through her career. It's so consistent. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's brilliance to me. Well, I wanted to ask you about Faith Ringgold because... Mm. She is such a powerful user of textiles. And I wonder to what extent you've looked at her and referred to her. Well, you know, I actually had never heard of her when I started doing what I do. So sometimes I do believe that, you know, sometimes there's a collective unconscious that's also just leading you to a particular thing. And then later you find out that actually there's been a movement, you know, like a textile art movement. So that was an interesting discovery for me. But, you know, I go back to what I was saying to you earlier, which is that I try very much to create in a kind of a vacuum, if I can put it that, with no outside influences. So I'm trying to discover my creativity. So, yes, her work is incredible. And there are other incredible textile artists. But I didn't look at their work and go, I really want to do that. You know, it, it, it came to me accidentally and I was just led on my path. Yeah. I mean, obviously, your work is absolutely so different to Faith, mm, you know, that, yes, but, but it's yeah. interesting, isn't it, that both of you are using it for a form of activism, even if that language is so completely different, that your work is absolutely confronting contemporary issues, but it's not doing it in, at all in the way that Faith would. Yes, exactly. But I mean, that goes to um, the individual perspective, right? Um, each one of us is unique. So, so we can never express ourselves you know, even if somebody had to work in silk and I had to teach them my technique, when they went out there on their own, like they wouldn't make the same work like the way I do it. So it is definitely about that kind of unique perspective and expression. And your drawings, do they look like your final works or are they very much patterns in the sense that you would look at a textile pattern? No, my work is drawing. So I draw. They're quite detailed. They have to be. But I do also get into, you know, that kind of space where I start breaking down areas and numbering them. So I'll start like going pink and blue. and But it's also because I forget. So, so I have to have little memories. So I think it's a combination of both. It's quite technical, but it's also quite spontaneous. And actually, my drawings are quite lovely. But I do like the fact that nobody gets to see them except for me. <laughs> Of course, it, it, the drawing has to be destroyed in order to make the work. Yeah. And therefore, do you ever feel a certain sort of a sadness to see something that is particularly lovely disappearing as you are making the work? Well, I've been thinking lately that maybe I should share my drawings with the world. But I mean, I just love what I do with the textiles. It becomes something else. It's like anyone can draw. Like if you go to art school and you're dedicated, you'll come out of it being able to draw. So I don't think there's anything particularly exceptional about it. I think the magic for me is when I use the textile to to create this work that says so much, that's the magic. But you never know, I, I might do some drawing. 
I mean, show some. <laughs> Intriguing. Uh, I, at this point, I normally ask people what they have pinned to the studio wall. But if you don't like to have other art around you when when you work, does that mean you don't really have much other art literally around you on the walls? No, no, I don't. So basically, I've got fragments of silk and then I've got like lists because I'm a list maker. <laughs> and then I like to just like pin little pieces of fabric onto the wall that somehow like I feel like they're going to inspire me so so that's what I have in my space yeah and is that lists of things that you want to do with the work so you say you sort of have ideas for the work that you then put into action is it that kind of thing that you're listing yeah so like if I've got ideas then I write them down or if I'm working on a piece and it's getting really hard and I need to make that list and check things off Sometimes, you know, it's like a to-do list, like for my son, for school, you know, whatever. So it's usually a combination, a shopping list, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's mixed. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to around 50 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. There's a great variety of institutions on the app, each with a digital guide. For instance, there's a huge number of UK-based institutions and organisations showing contemporary art, from new contemporaries showing recent graduates, to the visionary producers of public works, Art Angel, to contemporary spaces that are always a barometer of artists to watch, like the Camden Arts Centre in London, the Hepworth Wakefield and the Fruit Market in Edinburgh. In Bloomberg Connects Guides, you can discover unique audio content, hear from artists and curators in exclusive videos, go behind the scenes of exhibitions past and present, and plan your visit in advance. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app is available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now, which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I actually go to the Goodman Gallery very, very often, but it's because it's down the road from me and it's usually on the way. So I've got my Friday routine and it's on the way. So if there's a show on that I really want to see, I pop in there. Yeah, it's just parenting. You know, I, I have to like, everything has to be quite convenient. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so yes, yeah. But it's a great roster of artists, isn't it? And of course, yeah. the Goodman Gallery have a presence throughout the world. Exactly. And, and one of the things is that there are sort of talismanic artists as well. And, you know, people like William Kentridge, who um, I imagine if you are making drawings, his drawings must be so interesting to you. I love his drawings. And I think that's probably another reason why I haven't shown mine, because I'm just like, when you can draw like William Kentridge <laughs> and then somebody else tries to show some drawings. <laughs> It's true. He's, he's a great master. But I don't, oh, one of the things amazing. is, he, you know, he's, he's a great encourager of other artists as well. And can no, you tell me is. something about, about that community in South Africa? Because obviously there is, a, you know, a, a, there's that community around Goodman Gallery. There are various communities. You know, to what extent mm. are, you, are you part of a community in, in South Africa? I am very much a hermit artist. I mean, I know artists when I was younger, before I was a mother, I used to go out and we'd have drinks together and all of that. But we never really discussed art as such. We were just being drunken artists, if I can just put it that way. So, yes, I, I'm definitely like a lone wolf. I think that's the only way to, to describe myself. Um, but what you said earlier about William Kentridge, um, I had an experience with him. When I had my second solo show in Joburg, he came to my show and everyone went crazy and he bought a work. <laughs> <laughs> That must have so, been quite something. Oh, it was amazing. He just, he made my evening, really. It was incredible. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? 
Well, I don't know if it's a cultural experience, but COVID <laughs> has been uh, quite a thing. And, you know, you know, I'm usually quite like a rigid, controlling person. Like that's my personality. I like to know like what I'm having for lunch and what's going to happen tomorrow and what I'm going to wear. And I have set ideas about certain things. But I've just become a lot more flexible because I've realized that life is very fragile. So I think now the way I see everything, the way I do everything, the way I engage with other people is in a much more compassionate, open, um, spontaneous way, just with that understanding that tomorrow is promised to no one and, and, and that life is fragile. I mean, if you think about the people who passed away in the last two years, it's like impossible. That's not possible. How can that person be gone? They were strong, they were young, but they're gone. Yeah, I can imagine also that it must have been because, of course, as as we've been talking about, you know, you were at home and they were able to make work. But your work's been profoundly affected by COVID, hasn't it? There's a, the work in London right now that you made during lockdowns. And there's another body of work that's about to um, come to Seoul, which again was affected by that. And, that. and that reflects more on people around you as well as yourself, right? Yes, absolutely. Because, it you know, it's, it made me, first of all, like, ask myself why I do what I do, you know. And then the answer was, you know, for the people around me that, that love me, my family, my extended family, that I'm not just on this journey as some kind of egocentric exercise, but it's to reflect positively, you know, on the, my loved ones. Because if I am committed and hardworking and ethical, then it reflects well on my son, you know, it reflects well on my parents, um, you know, all, all of that, yeah. And those works for Seoul, how did you choose the imagery for that? Because as you say, you plan the images, you take the photographs, you often stage the photographs. To what, to what extent were, they, were these more sort of snapshots of people and to what extent were they quite carefully planned? Well, it wasn't actually carefully planned. I just had an idea. And then I'm, the first work I made for that show was um, the work of my brother and my son, which I call um, Sweetest Devotion. <laughs> Um, so that was really the jumping off point for me was that I knew I wanted to make that work, but I'd taken the photograph a while earlier when my brother was here during the lockdown and I saw the two of them together and I thought it was quite touching, but the rest of them came quite spontaneously. So my son's father took some pictures at his birthday and I really liked that. And then, um, my friend's ex-girlfriend took a photo of him which I thought expressed so much affection and I have affection for this friend of mine. So I just thought, wow, that's so beautiful. Like she looks at him the way I look at him. I don't know. It's very interesting, but he's also somebody who's been in my life for a very long time. So he's a part of my family. And then I wanted to do this work of like a family tree and I found passport photos and stuff and just like old classical photos so that, you know, so I think this show was not so much me taking the photos as just taking found images, but working within what I was trying to express. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? Well, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, I think, is one of the most brilliant writers of our time. Ernest Hemingway, I mean, the man was brilliant. 
I think his work is, is actually eternal. He has that tone that's so distinct that you can't mistake his writing for, for someone else. So I'm very much into, into the kind of the, the classical, yeah. <laughs> and do you use writers in response to your work in, in the sense that the works have a kind of narrative quality? Mm -hmm. So is there a sort of sense in which writing kind of informs some of the kind of narratives of the work, the stories behind the work? I think probably just reading someone expressing themselves with words and then me picturing it as a visual, I think definitely that, that has a huge, huge influence. You know, like the Zimbabwean writer, um, Dambuto Marachera, he makes me think of like activism, political activism. I don't know why. And like blackness and, and just thinking out of the box. You know, I think for me particularly, the thing with Chimamanda was when she said that feminism, you know, is about social, political and economic equality of the sexes. And then she said something about how sexuality, you know, is encouraged to be expressed differently between girls and boys. I just resonated with that so much. And it's like what I've always felt, but I've never had the words. So I've basically been trying to express that through my work. But she's so accurate in her expression. I wanted to talk to you about the way that you depict your own body and the way that sometimes in the imagery, it seems to me that there's an extreme pleasure that you get from depicting your own body. And there's a sensuality in the very depiction of it and in those shapes that fill the body where the light hits the body. Can you say something about that? Well, I have to say that um, it's a good thing I'm not doing any of my body right now because I've got a bit of COVID weight on me. <laughs> but I do take pleasure in the human form. I absolutely do. I don't think just my body. I think I look at different bodies and, and I see the beauty in them. It's owning my vessel, I guess, in a way. It's saying, you know, this is the form I came in and it, it's a source of pleasure and I can experience pleasure in five different senses and you know, so, and and when I was at school, art school, I really enjoyed life drawing. So I think that's probably also what's coming through. Yeah, so that sort of fundamental thing, which it, which is still sort of, it's still creeping along, even if it's not such a fundamental part of art school, you really got something from that. Oh, yeah, I loved, loved, loved life drawing. You know, my son often says to me, Mommy, how come when you do bodies, you can see the bones and you can see the muscles? So I said, well, when I was at university, I was completely thrilled <laughs> by all of that, you know, a little bit of science and art, I guess. Like we did bones by themselves and then we'd have to do the bones under the flesh and then we'd do muscles by themselves and we'd have to do the muscles under the flesh. So that, that really stuck with me. So now when I look at a form, I'm seeing, you know, the nuance of the light, the protruding shapes that are coming from inside the body. And do you draw directly from life these days? I do sometimes sketch a little bit, but mainly for my works, it's, it's from photographs, yeah. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I listen to Radio Nova, the Paris radio station, especially Friday nights and Saturday nights because it's like a DJ's in your house. <laughs> and sometimes I need that. But um, for these shows, I've been listening to Anita Baker a lot. Yeah, I used to love her when I, when I was a teenager. I used to do singing lessons. So I was, you know, I was very much into vocalists and, and you know. Yeah, so lately it's like I just went back to the old school <laughs> and I also thought it was very interesting because she was fighting for the rights of her songs wasn't she just recently right so so when I hear her lyrics and just like oh my god she's she's also brilliant 
like that she can sing like that, she can play an instrument, and she can write those lyrics is is profound. Yeah, she's got an extraordinary voice as well. She's, in mm. a way, she's sort of, she's she doesn't get the credit she's she deserves, does no, she? No, she actually doesn't. She really, really doesn't. And I've decided it's because she doesn't show her breasts and thighs. <laughs> <laughs> the world is a bit strange about like women who don't allow themselves to be objectified in in create like in music in particular, actually. That's very true. In terms of music, would you put different music on according to the different stages of your process? So, you know, obviously there are much more fiddly bits that you're doing within the context of your work and much more expansive bits. Does the music change? No, no, it does. So basically when I'm in a complete panic and I'm having all these intense emotions and I don't know what I'm feeling, I put on Anita Baker and then I sing with her and then my neighbours go, oh my God, there she goes again. (laughs) (laughs) But if I'm flowing, then it's definitely Radio Nova. And then actually sometimes like on a Sunday morning, like when I just need to reset or if I'm going through a real panic, then I actually listen to like motivational stuff. So I listen to Louise Hay and you know, stuff like that, just to kind of do what my son calls mind control. <laughs> just just to help me to kind of center and, and I guess accept whatever feelings I'm having, feelings of vulnerability and yeah. What other media influence your work? Well, I think any kind of narrative form for me, you know, as long as it's brilliantly done. So like really great writers, beautiful films. You know, I often go back to Jane Campion's films, um, particularly The Piano, which I think is just a beautiful work of art. You know, old posters, you know, like the original Vogue covers or some of those like communist um, political posters I love those as well just just because of the beauty element of them i think really just just anything narrative based that i believe to be powerful it's interesting you you talked about jane campion's piano because of course that's absolutely about a woman finding her voice in a domestic space this time obviously through through music right yes exactly so we might not be the same skin tone but i do feel that i can relate to her protagonists because she does focus a lot on women. And actually, the one character that I really resonated with was in Bright Star, because she was sewing her way into personal power. So, I mean, I know it was about Keats, but actually, for me, it was about her. I wanted to ask you about fashion, because obviously, mm-hmm. the, you know, you, you, you were involved in fashion, and, and obviously your work relates in some ways to, the, to the, the sort of stuff of fashion. To what extent is fashion still a sort of important influence in your work? I would say not so much. I think, you know, I love to page through um, Vogue magazine and look at all the beautiful creations and the great photography. But I think for me, what's remained is the importance of clothing in, in my narratives, but in daily life as well. So sometimes I like to get into the texture of clothing, but it's really about the tactile experience, not so much about fashion. But I think when I look at those photo shoots, it does give me some ideas on how to how to express the tactility of textile. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Well, I don't know if you can call it a discipline, but I often tidy up like a maniac. <laughs> and it's like, as long as it's not tidy, I can't work. 
But does that mean that it gets very messy at various points? It can get messy. Like over the weekends, it gets very messy. So on Sundays, I'm often in a panic and the panic doesn't go away until the house is tidy. But, you know, on a good day, it's like I'll put away the dishes into the dishwasher and, you know, tidy up. <laughs> but there's always there's always something. And it it's always how I begin my work is that I tidy up. It's like I'm focusing my brain. It's like I'm putting stuff into compartments. I don't I don't know how it works. It's also, I guess, like a blank canvas. You need that sort of that clear sight of your territory and you need to focus directly on it. Yes, exactly. So chaos is not good for creativity, for me. <laughs> if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? It would be a work I made of my son when he was much younger. It's called Temporary Reprieve. I just think it's so beautiful. I just feel like, I mean, I know that people you know, are more interested in works like The Rebirth of the Black Venus. But for me, that work is what I always want to express in a work. And I guess sort of some of these works you potentially have to let go of you know collectors have them or or museums have them so how do you feel about that well you know that's the thing with that piece was that if I had money I would have kept it (laughs) but I was saving up for a house for my son and I to live in so I needed the money so this is really what it comes down to in the end you know I have friends who are like no I can't sell that it's it's important to me it's sentimental And then I just think, well, okay, then just suffer, you know, starve, whatever. (laughs) Some of us have had to make sacrifices and and you make sacrifices. Um, And and so where is that work now? Do you still have access to it? Can you see it? Yes, it's with one of my very, very good collectors. So I'm really, really happy that I know it's very much loved where it is. And lastly, what's art for? Art is for whatever you want it to be for. (laughs) For me, it's my salvation. It's my purpose. It's my reason for living. You know, it's, it's my destiny. It's, it's my gift from my maker, whoever my maker is. (laughs) Yes. I always used to say it's not political, but I realized it is also political. So I think it can also just be about the beauty. Like I love the beauty of created artwork. So it can be about pleasure So it can be about whatever the individual wants it to be. Billy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. Billy Zangewa's exhibition Running Water is at Lehman Maupin in London until the 8th of January 2022 and her show Flesh and Blood is at Lehman Maupin's Soul Gallery from the 18th of November until the 15th of January next year. Her exhibition Thread for a Web Begun is at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco until the 27th of February. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Billy Zangay. See you next week. Bye for now.
This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.